Okay, let's get started. Um, the summer Esther and I got married uh, was the summer that I worked the absolute worst job of my entire life, um, which is saying something because my very first job was shoveling horse manure. Um, I did all man through hay, did all manner of farm work. I did construction cleanup for my dad. I I did roofing for my dad. I uh, worked as a waiter, which is maybe second worst job. Um, I painted houses, mowed lawns, which I absolutely hated. I sold insurance. I was a filing clerk for a mortgage company. I cleaned carpets, and I've always done all manner of construction, uh, including like uh, handyman and and uh, uh, home maintenance kind of stuff that went into like sewer work, where I've had all manner of things on my body that I can't talk about in church. And all of these jobs were better than the job I had in the summer of 92. I worked for a temp company, uh, and I got sent to do a light warehouse job that was supposed to be a two-week project. And uh, it was me and 12 other temps. Uh, and so I was expecting to do some loading and unloading of packages and things. But uh, I was a little bit surprised when we went, and they lined us up at these big, long metal tables, and they dropped a stack of cardboard at the end of the table. And... And the first person took the first piece of cardboard, put a fold in it. It was perforated. You folded it and slid it down. The next person put a fold in it, slid it down. And on and on and on for thousands of these. And we finally finished, and we were just making a box. We were making a cardboard box. So at the end of this thing, uh, we thought we were done, and we were surprised when they brought our, you know, when, when we get a stack of them at the end, the guy that was running the thing came in with a forklift, took the stack away, and... Uh, and so we were shocked when we thought we were done, and he brings our stack back and puts it at the front of the table again with a new thing of flat cardboard that was perforated. So now you grabbed your box, you grabbed your new piece of cardboard, you folded it, you stuck it in, you slid it down. Somebody else folded something, stuck it in, slid it down again. And we did that through two more rounds to get dividers in our box. And then they brought them around again, and we had to put a stand on our box. And so we spent the entire summer making thousands of these. Ours was a little different, but basically every time you see one of these in Walmart or anywhere else with displays in them, there's a human soul dying in a warehouse <laughs> somewhere for that display. Incidentally, when we were done, once we finished our last one, they brought them back around again, and we had to load them up with eight or nine different versions of these. You guys remember Ziggy? Yeah, we were doing Ziggy calendars and things, so... We had to fill up our boxes with Ziggy merchandise, and then they shrink-wrapped them and carried them off to be carried to a retailer somewhere where all they had to do was unwrap them and, and sell them. So, like I say, 12 of us started the job. It was supposed to be two weeks. After the first day, about half of them quit. Like, they just left. And uh, the rest left after the, full, the, the first week. So I was the only one left. This was a soul-sucking job. Our supervisor was a nice enough guy, but... He was a few fries short of a Happy Meal. And, and we were all positive in our guts that this guy started this job as sharp and bright as any of us and that the job had actually bored the brains out of the man. So <clears throat> everyone was quitting, and, and I, I wanted to quit desperately, but I had a problem. Not long before getting this contract, I had fallen head over in heels, love, head over in, heels in love with the most beautiful woman I'd ever met. And I was trying to demonstrate to this goddess that I was not a quitter. That I was trying to prove that I was a type of guy that could stick something out even when I was miserable. Uh, and although I make light of that a little bit, I was honestly 
If it was not for the fact that I was trying to prove I was responsible, I would have dumped this job in a second. This, is, this might have been the first time in my life I can remember doing something because I said I would. Uh, and, and that was the only reason I was doing it was because I said I would. But, uh, but, but this is before I discovered like audiobooks and boredom was like the most frightening thing on the planet to me. And so this job was horrible. But I wanted to prove to my newly discovered love that I was faithful. And so I stayed the entire eight, almost nine weeks. It took me and three full-timers to put together all of these Ziggy displays. And when we were done, the factory and my temp service were both shocked that I made it to the end. And they, um, and uh, once I completed my contract, the company offered me a full-time position um, folding boxes, which I immediately and unabashedly turned down. I, I got out of there as quick as I, I could. But uh, bear in mind, I was 19 and, you know, had pretty strong signs of ADD. But uh, so that perceives on the, I mean, that adds to the kind of perceived drama that I add to the story maybe. But um, this stands in my head as the metaphor for faithfulness. Like this eight weeks is what comes to mind anytime I think about faithfulness. And this horribly painful memory came back to me this week um, as I was studying our saint uh, for the week because Today's saint exemplifies faithfulness. Um, this is the second week of our series we're titling Surrounded. That comes from uh, Hebrews 12 that we read last week where the author of Hebrews spends all of chapter 11 making this big long list of these amazing people who, who lived a life of faith and trusted God. And then immediately after giving this list, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith. Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race that has been set before us. Last week we studied, uh, studied Wanda Zumaranga, Zumaraga, the first bishop of Mexico who was thrown unqualified into this huge job 9,000 miles away from anything that really mattered in history at the time. Uh, and he not only served God faithfully, but he actually revolutionized the Western Hemisphere. Zumaraga was uh, incredibly active. Um, though his hands were tied for the beginning of like his service, and all he could really do was, was preach, which turned out to make all the difference. Um, by the time he did get some resources, he built schools, universities, seminaries. He advanced manufacturing and agriculture. He wrote books, ran a newspaper. He was a true Renaissance man. He did a little bit of everything. Today's saint is by no means as resourceful, maybe, and multifaceted as Zumaraga, but she is truly the best example that I know of, of how huge of an impact one person can have on history through simple faithfulness. This is Monica of Hippo, as she uh, was not nearly famous enough in her lifetime to be immortalized in any kind of art. We don't actually know what she looked like. But she was born in modern-day Algeria in Africa. Um, and so most classical artists paint her as like a northern European white lady. But I would decided to go with one that at least shows a closer skin tone to what she probably actually looked like. We don't know that this is what she looked like, but uh, we, she was most likely um, uh, dark-skinned. Monica of Hippo was uh, raised in a Christian home, but most likely for financial reasons was married to a Roman pagan named Patricius who was a brute of a man. Um, and to make it worse, uh, Monica married uh, into his family and found out that his mother still lived with her. Um, and so uh, 
which was kind of common at this time. When we say the phrase, we actually talk about this every time I do a wedding. When we say the phrase, uh, giving away the bride, that's what it used to be like. Uh, husbands rarely had a mother-in-law. Like you, th- there was very little contact with the bride's family after she was given away. It was very unlikely for, for her to have much relationship with her family once she was given away. So she, was, she left father and mother and went into a new family. There's even some reference to that when Jesus is talking in the New Testament about some of the conflict that can come by faith. He's like mother against daughter, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and blah, blah, blah. Like, because once you got married, the daughter became part of that family. So she was almost like a daughter. Um, this wasn't a rare situation, but uh, uh, for, uh, for a woman to, to move into her, her new husband's house and find out that the mom still lived there. But M- Monica's mother-in-law was a doozy. I think she was probably historically the source of all mother-in-law jokes. Um, because she was she was not um, a nice person. In fact, uh, I read that when Patricia got engaged, he said, Mom, um, I'm going to bring home three girls, and I want you to pick and see if you can figure out which one's my fiancé. Sure enough, later, 20 minutes uh, went by, and Patricia walks three girls in the room, and his mom says, it's that one. He was like, holy cow, how did, how did you know so fast? She's like, I just don't like her. So... <laughs> I had to fight the urge to not put in like 10 mother-in-law jokes because there, there's a lot of them. But for Monica, it was not a joking matter. Patricius had a violent temper. And uh, though he yelled and belittled her a lot, he didn't actually beat her, which was uh, actually very acceptable at the time. But his mother um, was not so kind. She often beat Monica and, uh, and was just pure evil. Um, so between Patricius's cheating... And his mom's abuse, Monica lived a very sad young life. Um, but what's a, what kind of stands out about her is how faithful she was to Jesus in the midst of this. Um, she's noted for always giving alms and always praying for uh, regularly, daily, for people in the church who needed prayer. Um, in fact, she was so faithful. Patricius, even though he was a pagan, um, he allowed her faith and allowed her to carry out her faith. And and he recognized um, how kind of faithful and genuine she was. And so uh, even though he kind of made fun of her for her faith every once in a while for wasting her time with all these things, he actually did respect it. But every account of Monica claims that though Patricia's personality kind of tormented Monica, um, she never stopped. She never even hesitated in her faithful service to God. And he respected that. Uh, Monica gave birth to three kids. Actually, three kids survived infancy. Um, and despite her constant attempts and begging, Patricius would not allow her to have the children baptized, which created in her this deep anxiety. Because um, at the time, you know, they believed that you had to baptize a child um, for it to get into heaven. Um, but Monica began, because of this, to regularly pray for the souls of her children. Um, even uh, even for the souls of her husband and mother-in-law. There are accounts of Monica weeping daily as she prayed for her family to come to know Christ. Um, and incidentally, one year before her death, one year before, she, uh, before he died, before Patricius died, he was baptized as a believer into the Christian church, and his mother-in-law was baptized as well. And actually, for the end of the mother-in-law's life, she was a kind of a faithful Christian confidant to Monica. Um, so Monica's constant prayers were answered. She got to see her husband come to faith in Christ and her mother-in-law. Of her three kids, two of them, 
um, Navigius and Perpetua came to know Jesus quite early and were baptized as soon as they were adults and able to make the decision for themselves and kind of entered into devoted Christian discipleship. The third was not as easy. His name was Augustine. Not only uh, had he resisted Monica's prayers and her faithful service, um, but he was actually steadily growing farther and farther from a life of faith. He was trained in rhetoric, debate, um, and he became a Manichaean, uh, which was a, another faith of that day. And he was actually trying to convert his mother. He came to the dinner table and tried to debate her on her faith. And, and so she kicked him out of the house, kicked him out of her. They were sitting at the table. She said, you're not welcome at my table, and kicked him out. And, uh, and after teaching, talking to a church leader and getting some advice from a church leader, uh, she, she, did, she changed her, her path and let him come back in. And so Augustine came back home, but by 17 he had embraced full hedonism. Whatever feels good, uh, do it. Despite the constant kind of nagging and warnings of his mother, he entered uh, a live-in relationship with a prostitute, um, and they had a son together. He was continually lazy, drunk, and dismissive of his mother's faith. And much of this kind of full abandon into debauchery happened not long after Patricius died. So he's now kind of the man of the house and, and, uh, and doing whatever he wants. Monica had seen her prayers save her husband and her evil mother-in-law, um, who is, uh, like I say, now a dear confidant. She knew the power of prayer, and she believed that she had received a word from God that uh, God was going to save Augustine. But no matter how much she prayed, it seemed like everything was going the other direction. In Augustine's memoirs called the, the Confession, he admits that Monica's prayers were actually working very deeply on him, um, but he never let her know. In fact, he admits that during the season, he knew that he would eventually become a Christian, but he also knew that once he did, he would probably have to clean his life up, and he just wasn't ready to do that yet. Eventually, Monica's faithful devotion to Jesus and her continual prayers for Augustine's salvation grew too convicting for her son. So he decided to move. He fled without telling her. He went in the secret of night, boarded a ship and headed for Rome to get away from his mom's constant prayers. And uh, she found out about it, found out where he was going from a friend. And like any stubborn mom, jumped on a ship and followed. And uh, she, when she got to Rome, she found out that he had moved to Milan and so she worked until she could get a ticket to Milan, and she went to Milan. And when she got there, she found Augustine in, uh, had become basically Ambrose, who was one of the great theologians of the day. Um, Augustine had gotten in a relationship with Ambrose, and they debated. And, and, uh, and not long after she arrived in Milan, she got to see... Shoot. It's been a weird day. <laughs> And this is, this is way too early for this. <laughs> I knew this was going to be an, emer- an emotional message, and, it's, and we were like crying in worship practice. I don't know what is going on today. Anyway, Monica got to see her son finally baptized after 17 years of resistance. And on their way home from Africa, um, 
after Monica had literally spiritually birthed her entire family into faith in Jesus, she died peacefully on the way home at the age of 60, which is quite old at that time. Augustine um, goes on to become possibly one of the most influential theologians in history. His writings not only shaped orthodoxy in the 4th century, which has kind of been orthodoxy ever since, but um, his writings motivated and informed the people who reformed the church in the 1500s and the Protestant Reformation. Um, And his writings continue to shape the church today. Augustine uh, uh, is probably one of the one of the most influential writers in history. I owe a huge part of my spiritual development to Augustine. When I read Augustine's Confessions, um, which is his memoir, uh, it immediately changed my life. I think at that point I'd never read anything older than maybe C.S. Lewis. And, uh, and my entire focus was kind of on contemporary Christianity. But when I read the words of this guy who lived 1,700 years ago and yet was like incredibly transparent and accessible, He struggled with a lot of the same issues that I struggle with um, when I realized that he was probably more contemporary in 350 A.D. than many Christian authors are today. I was absolutely hooked, and I became like an avid student of church history and older things. Um, If you consider all the writers in the entire church ever, other than maybe the Apostle Paul, nobody's had a bigger impact than Augustine. And I would argue that you would not have an Augustine if you didn't have a Monica. And honestly, uh, dang it. When I found, uh, although Augustine was this weirdly compelling and contemporary figure to me, um, Monica was even more. Um, Because as I was reading about Augustine's sexual addiction and his love for the new and novel that frustrated him when I read about his kind of general laziness and even more than that about the, the way he kind of disdained classism and yet at the same time completely enjoyed the class he was in, like any, any struggle with the tension of hating it, but also knowing that he got to enjoy it. As I read about how his logic struggled with his faith, but at the same time he knew underneath that struggle was the fact that he just didn't want to obey and he was very transparent about that. When I was reading about all these things that I could completely relate to in this guy's life who lived in the 4th century while I was living at the beginning of the 21st century, nothing felt more contemporary to me than Monica. As, as compelling and contemporary as Augustine was, I had trouble even putting Monica in, like, in my imagination in clothes that fit the time. Monica crying out to God in genuine anguish, and fear and hope and love for the eternal soul of her children as she watched them grow farther and farther from God. That felt now. Augustine was immediately real to me. He felt contemporary. But I I had trouble not putting Monica in blue jeans and a shirt from Target coming out of her prayer time with her mascara running. Because I had met Monica. I would prayed with Monica. I would counseled Monica. I know Monica. The day that Esther and I decided to join with some people and plant open table, I sat at 
Oh, brother. I sat at Applebee's with a Monica. I'd had a dream of planting a church for years, and we'd helped other people plant churches. I'd always critique churches and ask hard questions like, why do churches do it this way? Why don't they just do this? And I'd, I'd always wondered if, if we could do a church differently, and, and this would rattle around in my head forever. But Esther was not excited about the idea of church planting. Part of it was that she <laughs> had made a deal with God when she was young that she would do anything and go anywhere as long as she was not a, a pastor's wife. That was the only thing in the world she did not want to be was a pastor's wife. And by the way, don't do that. Don't tell God what you don't want to do. Like that's how you get stuck doing it. it just My mentor used to tell me that God sits in heaven listening for the word never. Like, like I will never be a worship leader. Yeah, you might as well just start guitar lessons now because it's coming. So... Esther didn't want to be a pastor's wife. That wasn't really the, the reason. The real reason was that um, I, I have hyper-focus. My ADD kind of makes me sometimes zoom in hard on one thing at the expense of everything important. And uh, there was a season in my life when I was working full-time as a floor coverer, and I was also a, a full-time children's pastor for a growing church, two services, and wrote all my own curriculum, and we met several times throughout the week to practice skits and puppets and all kinds of crazy things. I led worship in the youth band, and taught on a three-week rotation. I was also teaching a class in a Bible college on Paul's epistles that I thought was going to be super easy, but it wound up taking way more study time than I thought it was going to. And, and, uh, and I led worship and occasionally taught at this huge Monday night Bible study thing. And Esther felt like if I did all that in like my free time, if, if we actually threw ourselves into a church plant, she may never see me again. And that, that worried her. And so she had resisted uh, for about 20 years. And finally, I laid the dream down. I was tired of continual frustration and disappointment, so I, I put the dream to sleep, and we settled in a church that we liked well enough, and our kids felt at home, and so we just kind of settled there. And Esther and I sat at lunch at Applebee's with a Monica, and I could tell that when she sat down, she was carrying the weight of the world on her shoulders. And as she, I asked what was going on, what was up, something you seemed like something happening, and and uh, she sat there in her jeans and her blouse from Target with her mascara running. And engaged. <laughs> Shoot. This is ridiculous. She engaged in the truly ancient and beautiful act of motherhood. She was... Dang it. I wrote this stuff. I should be able to do this. She was carrying the souls of her children when they wouldn't carry them for themselves. And the load was utterly crushing, but laying them down. <laughs> Stop it. Laying them down wasn't an option. When Monica of Hippo was at her most desperate, when she had kicked her son out of her house, she turned to a bishop and, uh, and she told him the whole situation. The bishop said, it is not possible that a child of so many tears should perish. Those words have kind of become famous in Monica's story. So Monica invited her son to come back home because of those words. She picked up his soul again and went back to carrying it. Sitting in Applebee's, 
I used different words, but I basically did the same thing. I reminded Monica of Applebee's that God loves her son and he hears her prayers. He sees her tears and he responds to faithfulness. On the way home, Esther told me that she thought it was time to plant the church. She realized as, as I grew kind of passionate while counseling my friend that she hadn't seen me do that since I'd laid the planting dream down. And so this church is really Esther's fault. When you write your tithe check, blame her. Monica changed the course of church history the way moms have done forever. She loved and worried about her kids. She didn't fill stadiums or write books. She didn't break glass ceilings. Not that anything... Not that there's anything wrong with any of those, but Monica changed the world, literally changed the world by being a mom. If you've been here long, you've no doubt heard me say our best chance of changing the world is to raise faithful world changers. We're too old to change the world, most of us. So we pour ourselves into our kids because they're this force for good that we can send into the future. I talked a little bit last week about how We like having kids in here while we worship, even though it can be a distraction. Because to put it blunt, we're playing the long game. Their discipleship is more important than your comfort. If we want to grow a church for the next couple of years, we entertain the kids and we focus on you. If we want to grow a church for 50 years from now, the kids are our best shot. That's the long game, which is... What I think Monica did best, Monica's prayers for Augustine came from her guts. It it wasn't a discipline. It was something that just poured out of her. She was a mom, and there's nothing more mom than Monica worrying about her kids. Every mother on the planet should be venerated as a saint for the way they care and pray for their children. What set Monica apart more was her just absolute, unrelenting faithfulness over a long period of time. This is something the world no longer teaches us. We used to think in terms of harvest seasons and lifetimes and legacies. And now we think fast food and microwaves and TikTok. Anyone here use TikTok? You can can admit it. Nobody? It's, It's horrible. 10 to 15 second videos from everything from comedy bits to dance challenges to sports highlights to thirst traps to cooking tutorials to art demonstrations to spiritual encouragement and on and on and on. And none of it's truly, well, some of it's insidious, but most of it's fine. It's just that the killer part is you sit down for like two minutes and 45 minutes goes by because it's just, it's just a small video at a time. And after 45 minutes, your soul has gained nothing. Like it's just a time burner. And it's because they're small little bites, 15 seconds at a time. Like how dangerous can 15 seconds be, right? I think the real tragedy of our time is not that we're morally bankrupt and desensitized everything. I don't think we have the attention span to maintain the moral outrage that we do feel. I mean, be honest, and quick poll, has anybody ever seen something on Facebook that like either made you angry or disgusted or frustrated, and then a couple thumb swipes later you see a puppy and you're like, ooh, puppies. <laughs> like, and you forget how mad you were five seconds ago. I think that's the problem with our world. We don't have the attention span to maintain some of the moral outweighs we should have. We jump from thing to thing to thing and we want to switch quickly and often. 
I've said it before that I stand in front of the microwave frustrated that it takes two whole minutes to heat up my coffee. When everything looks terrible, and even when we feel helpless, and even when our prayers don't seem to rise any higher than the ceiling, even when we find ourselves in a place we never wanted to be, even with, when all of these things fill us with fear and anxiety and dread, that doesn't mean we lose hope. If we learn anything from, from Monica, it's that we remain faithful. We pray. Even when it doesn't seem to be having an impact, we pray. We continue to do good. We continue to pray. We continue to quietly and lovingly serve those around us. And yes, along the way, people might tell us we're silly. People might tell us we're wasting our time. They're going to ask us for evidence that our prayer has ever done any good. They're going to ask us for for all manner of things. And, and Monica reminds us that our prayers do nothing until they do. Our prayers do nothing until they do. And when they do, they change everything. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 6, 9, So let us not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we'll reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Paul goes on to, in 2 Corinthians 11, to explain the kind of life he lived as an apostle. He says, five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced dangers from rivers and from robbers. I've faced dangers from my own people, the Jews, as well as the Gentiles. I've faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, on the seas. I've faced danger of men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty. I've even gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. Who's weak in my feelings without my feeling that weakness? Who is led astray and I don't burn with anger? If I must boast, I would rather boast about the things that show how weak I am. A few minutes later in the next chapter, he says, that is why I take pleasure in my weakness and in the insults and the hardship and the persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. Because when I am weak, then I am strong. And this may sound like Paul shoveling theological mumbo-jumbo that preachers are supposed to say to make people feel better. But Monica, this perfectly ordinary girl from Hippo, this perfectly powerless woman who married into a terrible situation, this perfectly weak vessel who did nothing but what billions of wives and mothers have done for millennia, Monica took Paul seriously. She took him at his word. She dared to believe that her weakness, her inability to better her situation was actually her strength. And she flexed that powerful muscle of prayer. And when Monica slipped into eternity, she drug her family kicking and screaming along with her, which is all she ever wanted. So how do we respond to this? My dad who for all intents and purposes is my dad in every sense of the word, is not actually my biological father. I've had no contact with my biological father since I was 
two or something, I think, somewhere around there. But in my late 20s, my biological cousin reached out to me and told me that my biological grandmother was dying. Honestly, um, I had two sets of grandparents. I'd lost one set by this point, but I, uh, I didn't feel like I was missing anything in my life from my biological father's side. When I found out my grandmother was dying, I felt guilty because if I was honest, I, I never really gave her any thought at all. Um, so here's my biological cousin reaching out saying that uh, my grandmother would like to see me. And uh, so Esther and I packed our kids up, went to the hospital to say goodbye to a total stranger. And we walked in the hospital room and interrupted my grandma. She was watching TBN. And so she turned down the charismatic preacher who was screaming at the camera and looked at my family. And when she saw Matthew, she burst into tears because apparently he looked exactly the way I looked the last time she had seen me. And so we chatted, and I apologized for my long absence. I assured her it was carelessness and not bitterness that kept me away. She updated us on her condition, and then she said the words that have rung. (sighs) This is nuts. Rung in my ear ever since. She said, I've prayed for you every single day of your life. And she actually pulled out her prayer list and showed it to me where my name had this worn and comfortable. (laughs) Dang it. It's worn and comfortable looking spot on her list. And when I look back at my long kind of jumbled spiritual journey, I have a hard time recognizing the exact moment that God kind of came into my life because in retrospect, it feels like God's presence was always there in some form, kind of moving me along. I've had several moments where I've made like firm decisions to, to follow after God more passionately, but it feels like the presence of God's always been in my life. And my biological grandmother had almost zero impact on my upbringing. I was, I was barely aware she existed. But there might be no other human being on the planet who's had more impact on who I became as a person. I'm here because I had a Monica in my life. And chances are you are too. There's nothing innately wrong with flashy. There's nothing evil about celebrity. Power and money don't guarantee someone's going to be good or bad. But I tend to believe more good is done in the world by ordinary people being faithful for a long time. Eugene Peterson defines discipleship as a long obedience in the same direction. I absolutely love that definition, a long obedience in the same direction. We tend to take short view of things. We judge life in snapshots. We, we view everything in a 10 or 15 second TikTok video. Life is, life is a journey. It cannot be judged on a social media feed. At Open Table, we say it this way, this is a marathon and not a sprint. We constantly fight the temptation to compromise health for the race just so we can take off on some spiritual sprint. I have, we have lived that life. When I was a children's pastor, we, we lived one church service at a time. 
We threw everything we had in a single service. And when it was over, while we were still breathing heavy, we would go, how are we going to top that next week? And we'd get to work on the next one. And people burned out. Of course they burned out. So now we're trying to stress health over appearance. We would, we would love to have the church like run amazing. It's, we'd love to start on time. That would be cool. We'd love to experience everything running smoothly and looking professional. We'd love to have a killer band that sounds professional and pours out their hearts to God and worship. We'd love to have a rocking kids ministry that's deep in discipleship but also fun where the kids can't wait to get back. But more than all that, we want healthy people. If we ever get to a place where we have, you know, all the right people and everything's just flowing smooth and everybody's healthy, I mean, who wouldn't want, you know, to put your best foot forward? But we're unwilling to burn people out or hurt their discipleship to put on a show. This is a marathon, not a sprint. On any given Sunday, everything may fall apart. We have band members who may not show up. It might just be me and my guitar up here sometime. Our kids ministry leader, Josh, might call and say, I can't be there. And never am I going to say, dude, what am I going to do with the kids? You've got to get here. The kids may just have to come up with us. And color and be distracting for one Sunday. And that Sunday might be utterly frustrating, but you know what? There's another Sunday in seven days. I occasionally preach a turd of a sermon. But there's another one in seven days. Even more, you might come and find that the sermon is brilliant and insightful as it usually is. <laughs> but it just doesn't speak to your heart that week. And that's okay. Because there's going to be more. This is a marathon, not a sprint. We don't live one week at a time. We're living a life of faith. This is never a single service. My junior year in high school, my grandfather hired me to put fence around his property in eastern Kansas. He had several... Uh, pastures blocked out, and we were going to fence around every single one of them. So as soon as school let out, we started going out, and I dug hundreds of holes with the old school post hole digger. Anybody work one of those? Yeah. Over and over and over again. Set the hedge post, tamp it down, set T post, stretch wire, all summer long. We came to the point where we had one long run of fence left and one week of summer left before I started two days in football. No way we were going to get it done. So my grandpa, Monday morning, goes into the barn, opens the big door, rolls out on the tractor that was sporting this huge hydraulic auger on the back of it. And we had no trouble finishing that last run of fence. I had dug hundreds of holes by hand, and the old man had an auger. When I went home and complained to my dad about it, ranting and raving and going off, I said, don't you tell me it builds character. My dad said, how much money did you make this summer? And I answered him, which was quite a bit. My dad says, how much do you think you'd have made if you'd have used that auger? I was quiet because I knew what he was going to say. He said, it ever dawned on you that maybe your grandpa wanted to pay you more money and so he needed to work you more time? What I saw as a tribulation was actually working in my favor all along. What I saw as, a, as an abuse, I was rewarded for I have no idea if Monica's reward was the relief of seeing Augustine finally come to Jesus and if it was all the sweeter because she'd waited so long for it. 
Or maybe without the weight of Augustine's soul on her shoulders, she might have gotten into all kinds of trouble. Who knows? Or maybe she just has a ginormous mansion in heaven. We can't know. All I know is God rewards faithfulness. God rewards faithfulness. And his timing in the reward is perfect. It's always perfect. While I was working that horrible job folding Ziggy boxes, it was a type of warehouse that blew a horn to signal like breaks and things. And so they blew one to start today. They blew one to start morning break. They blew one to send you back to work. Blew one for lunch. Blew one to get back to work. Blew one for afternoon break. Blew another one to get you back to work. And blew one at the end of the day. I've never worked like that before. I still don't work like that. My kids get frustrated because I've worked for myself for so long that they start going, 11.30, Dad, just want to kind of put lunch on your radar. Dad is 12, just so you know. Dad, it is 1.30. Are we going to eat today? Like, what is that? I was like, as soon as we get to a stopping point. Well, Dad, it's 3 o'clock. Like, we might as well eat dinner. Like, always been kind of bad. But this is one of those jobs didn't let you do that. You had to break when they told you to break. And this was before Facebook, so I had nothing to do for 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the afternoon, 30 minutes for lunch. So I went and picked up a pocket Bible and a little notebook. And for my one hour a day, I would sit there and read my Bible. And every time I didn't understand something, I would write the question in my notebook, and I would take it to my mentor and go, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? And to this day, I still do that. I still have my little notebook. Every time I hear something I want to study deeper, I jot it down. In those eight weeks, I got to build a habit while in hell, I got to build a habit that has served me for almost 30 years. God rewards our faithfulness. It doesn't always feel like it, but he rewards faithfulness. Let's go to the table.